0: Thank you to Dom, and uh, it's a delight and a privilege for me to be here with you all this evening. Um, I have a great appreciation for Grace Church of the Valley and for Pastor Scott Artevanis. Uh I first mes- met Pastor Scott, uh, Dr. Ardavanis as I used to call him when I was a seminary student, and he was one of my uh, preaching lab professors, and uh, have known him for uh, I suppose the last seven years, not always up close and personal. He came out here and, and moves three hours away from where, where we are and, and is pastoring uh, this great church, but uh, I've always appreciated, even if it's been from afar, Scott's devotion to the Lord, his, uh, his desire to proclaim the Scriptures to the people of God accurately and helpfully, and always his consistent, kind, personal encouragement to me. So it is a, a blessing to be here with you uh, here this evening. And it's a special blessing to be asked to speak on the gospel of Jesus Christ, a summerfest theme of of come and live, come unto me and live. Um, the gospel is the central message that Christianity has for the world, and for that message we turn to the Bible. We turn to God's own revelation of Himself to mankind. In the pages of Scripture, if we want to know what God's message to the world is, we need to turn to the Bible. But the Bible is a huge book. Even in my rather small print copy of the Scriptures, there are over a thousand pages in this book. And in fact, it's it's a bit of a misnomer to call the Bible a book. It's really more like a, a mini. Library. It's composed of 66 books written over the span of 1,500 years by 40 different authors. And this mini library contains a variety of literary genres. It's got history. It's got biography. There's poetry. There's personal letters and ethical instruction. And it covers a a wide range of topics as well. The Bible contains an account of the creation of the world. It's got a constitutional law code. It's got records of kings and battles and wars. There are songs of praise as well as lamentations of mourning. There are warnings of divine judgment and there are promises of divine blessing. The Bible records the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and the early correspondence of the first Christians. The Bible even contains a detailed account of the end of the world. That's quite a bit to sift through in this large book. But through all of these 66 books and all of the variety of their literary genres and the topics of discussion, there is an overarching central message that ties that entire mini library together. It's not a disjointed collection of books, it's a a, a unity of 66 books that tell the same story. And if you were to read the Bible from the first verse in the book of Genesis to the last verse in the book of Revelation, prayerfully asking God for understanding. It's called the providential pause. If you were to read the Bible from cover to cover, you would eventually discover that overarching central message. But the good news is, is that God has been very kind to us. We don't actually need to read the Bible from cover to cover before we discover the very heart of its message to us. Throughout the Scriptures, God has graciously given us these wonderful, even pithy, bite-sized statements and sentences that summarize the central message of the entire Bible in what is a rather easily digestible form. And so what I'd like to do this evening is turn our attention to one of those pithy statements that just succinctly encapsulates the gospel. If you can grasp this single sentence... You'll be able to understand the heart of the message of the Bible, the heart of the message that Christianity has to proclaim to the world. And the text is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. If you have your Bibles, turn to Second Corinthians chapter 5. If you're not sure where that is, I'm sure someone nearby will be able to help you find it, and it's even printed in the bulletin uh, in front of you. So let's read that verse together, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. It says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you can understand the significance of that sentence, you can understand the very essence of Christianity. Now, this verse presents the remedy to a problem that affects each and every one of us. And it mentions that problem twice, actually, in this one sentence. But it doesn't spend any time explaining the problem. There are five whole chapters that come before this in 2 Corinthians. And then there's the whole rest of the books to the left of 2 Corinthians that'll explain what this problem is. So because it doesn't explain it in this verse, I need to do a little bit of explaining if any of this is going to make sense. And, so, and, I'm at, and I wonder if you can see that problem that confronts each one of us in this verse. It's sin. You see that there? The word mentioned twice, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. What is sin? And why is it our problem? Well, sin is the breaking of God's law. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is saying no to God when he says yes. And it's demanding yes from God when he says no. The Bible says that there is a God in heaven who has created all things, including you and me, And as our creator, he has the authority over all of us, over all that he's made. What is yours belongs to you. You can do with it what you want. We, as the creatures of God, belong to God, and he can do with us as we please. And because he is the fountain of all goodness, of all loveliness, of all beauty, of all perfection, of all righteousness, it is God's character that is the standard of morality for our lives. Why should we live the way that we ought to live? Because God is who he is. Well, who is he? In his kindness, God has not left us to guess at what he's like, to guess at his character. He's revealed his character to us in his word, the law of God the commandments that He gives us to obey is the perfect expression of His holy being. And so it is the standard of morality for all of us as His creatures. But here's the problem. All of us, each and every one of us, have broken that law. We have all fallen short of the perfect standard of God's holiness, of the holiness of His character. If you asked 100 people on the street, whether they think that they're a good person, I bet not one of them would say, no, I'm a terrible person, I'm I'm, I'm a bad guy. And if you asked another hundred people whether they thought humanity was basically good, I'd bet no fewer than 95 people would say, Well, sure, yeah, I mean, despite the few outliers that you read on the evening news, you know, people who abuse people and kill people, yeah, yeah, sure, humanity on the whole is basically good. But the Bible's estimation of humanity is much, much less optimistic than that. In the book of Romans, chapter 3, scripture says of humanity for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God we've all broken God's law we've all failed to meet God's standard we fall short of that glorious standard of holiness that represents God's character that's expressed in his law say Mike what have I done I'm a good person I take care of my family you know I I, I don't cheat on my taxes I, I haven't killed anybody Well, you know, you might not have killed anybody, but did you know that Jesus said in Matthew 5 that if you are angry with your brother in your heart, that you've committed murder in your heart? Say, well, I've never committed adultery. I've never been unfaithful to my spouse. I've not had sex outside of marriage. Did you know that Jesus said again in Matthew 5 that everyone who looks at a person who's not their spouse with lust in their heart for that person has committed adultery with them in in his heart already. See, God's law is not just this list of do's and don'ts that focuses on our external actions. It's It's a perfect standard of God's own righteous character that addresses the wickedness in our hearts. It's who we are inside. People say, well, God knows my heart. Yes, that's the problem. God knows your heart. The scripture says the heart is deceitful above all things, and it's, in, it's incurably wicked. That is your heart. That's my heart. That's the Bible's estimation of man. And so we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Another passage in Romans 3 says of all humanity, for there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there's not even one. I didn't write that. God wrote that. Conventional wisdom says humanity is basically good. Hey, yeah, I mean again, I think I'm a pretty good person. But the Bible says that no one is good. Who should I believe, the Bible or you? I'm going to go with the Bible. We've all broken God's commands. Isaiah 53:6 says all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. We've turned to our own way. Rather than do things God's way, according to God's Word, we've strayed from Him and turned to our own way. Just a few verses earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's verse 15, Paul calls people who don't know Jesus, "...they who live for themselves." And that's us before Christ. We don't live to bring glory and honor to the God who created us. Our fundamental orientation as natural people is self-terminating. We live unto ourselves. We live for our glory, for our ends, for our purpose in our own way. We live for ourselves and not for the glory of God who's worthy to be lived for and so we are guilty and being guilty as the breakers of god's law we are liable to god's punishment the bible says the wages of sin is death sin earns death sin is a capital crime and the death that sin earns is not merely physical death though that is certainly part of it but it is spiritual death. It's being cut off from God, separated from God for eternity. Say, how is that just? Well, follow this. Since every sin is committed against an infinitely holy God, every sin is an infinite crime. And therefore, every sin deserves an infinite punishment. And Scripture teaches that that infinite punishment is eternity in hell. Eternity in a place which Jesus Christ himself describes as the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That horrible place is the just punishment that your sins deserve, that my sins deserve. And friends, the news gets worse before it gets better. Not only is eternal punishment what you and I deserve, there is nothing that we can do to escape it. Nothing. We might think that if we just say we're sorry, we feel bad, God will be kind and He'll be understanding and He'll let us off the hook. You know, kids are going to be kids, right? We're only human. We're all sinners. God understands that. But the problem with that thought is that God is a just judge, He's a just judge, He's a good God. And as a good God who is a just judge, he must punish sin. I mean, what would we think of a judge who in the case of a convicted murderer, who who pled guilty, who acknowledges, I did it, I killed those people, but then also wept with sorrow and over his actions. Maybe he was genuinely repentant and, and he begged the judge for mercy. What would we think of a judge who said, well, I can see that you're really sorry I'll let you go. Case dismissed. No jail time. What would you think of that, of that judge? Better yet, what would the victim's families think of that judge? I'd say that that judge is unrighteous, that that, that judge does not have any concern for the law, for what is right, for what is just. Guilty criminals, penitent though they may be, must be punished in accordance with their crimes. And so God can't just sweep sin under the rug. He can't just look the other way. If God is to remain holy, if he's to remain God, he must punish sin. Say, okay, well, I'll make it up to him. I'll pay for my sins. I'll go to church. I'll read the Bible. I'll get baptized. I'll come to backyard evangelistic events. I'll do penance, I'll give to charity, I'll volunteer my time, I'll pay God back for my crimes. But you see, friends, God is so holy that your best deeds are an insufficient payment for the penalty that you owe. God is infinitely holy, like we said, and sin against His holiness is therefore infinitely wicked, and so the price that we must pay is infinite. And we can't pay that price without escaping hell for eternity. Scripture says in Isaiah 64, verse 6, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And not to get too graphic here, but the original Hebrew term for filthy garment speaks of dirty underwear. That's what God thinks of our good deeds. Of our righteous works, and so Psalm forty-seven, verse or sorry, forty-nine, verses seven and eight, tell us to abandon all hope of paying for our sin by earning righteousness by good works. Psalm forty-nine, seven says, "So n- uh, no man can by any means redeem his brother, or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever." You want to pay for your own sins? You want to pay for your brother's sins? Give up hope. It can't be done. You should cease trying forever. So where in the world does that leave us? I mean, how can anybody be saved? If God is a just judge who must punish sin, how can anybody anybody be forgiven? Upon what basis can the holy God not count sin against sinners? Upon what grounds... Can he graciously extend forgiveness to sinners like us who don't deserve it? To sinners like us who deserve to perish eternally for our crimes? And the answer to that question comes in our verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What's that mean? It means that God the Father counted our sins against His sinless Son and crushed Him under the weight of divine wrath in our place. And then He counts Christ's righteousness to be ours. And He gives us the gift of eternal life as though we had lived Christ's perfect life of obedience, though we didn't. Jesus is clothed in the rags of our sin and punished like we deserve. And we are clothed in the spotless robe of His righteousness and are declared righteous like He deserved. That's what this text teaches. And in the rest of our time together tonight, I just want to unpack that. And we'll guide our thoughts along four main points, four facets of the gospel message as it's presented here for us in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And that first facet is, number one, the saving Father. The saving Father. We read in verse 21 that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Who is the He? Well, as we look back to the last word of the previous verse, we discover it to be God the Father. Verse 20 ends with Paul's entreaty. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, to God. He, that is God, made Him who knew no sin to be sin so the good news of salvation friends begins not with church not with man not with good works it begins with God it begins with the saving father salvation is of the Lord which means it is not the result of man's devising and and working only false religion speaks that way Only false religion teaches that by adherence to a set of religious rituals or to some moral code of conduct, sinful people can achieve a righteousness that might atone for their sins. But as we just mentioned, we are capable of no such thing. There's no one who does good. Together we've become useless. There's no one righteous, not even one. We are in no condition to accomplish salvation for ourselves. No, the plan of salvation originates as it must with the saving Father. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. So what that means, friends, is that Jesus is not hanging on that cross ultimately because of the betrayal of Judas or the wickedness of the Jews or the bloodthirst of the Romans. Jesus went to the cross as the Apostle Peter says in Acts 2.23, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Isaiah 53.10 says this ridiculous thing. I mean, if it wasn't in the Bible, you wouldn't believe it, but it says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, putting him to grief. Literally, the phrase is translated, the Lord was pleased to crush him. And we need to bow in wonder at that statement. This father who delighted in his son from all eternity, this son who in the days of his flesh had always and only done the father's will, this father who on multiple occasions declared from heaven itself, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, was pleased to crush his innocent and righteous beloved son under the weight and burden of my sin. Why in the world should a God so holy as this crush his righteous son for a worm like me? Why should the obedient son perish for treacherous, adulterous criminals? Again, I say it, we need to bow in worship before this magnanimous heart of the saving Father. God the Father is not some purse lipped furrowed-browed old miser who's just walking around furious with humanity, and then Jesus sort of steps in between us and says, oh, please, Father, don't be, don't be angry with them. You know, t- take care of them for my sake. No, the Father is no reluctant Savior. It was the love of the Father that sent the Son to be crushed for us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He is the saving Father. Only He could have possessed the wisdom to make hell-deserving sinners acceptable in His sight. Only He could have designed an atonement in which sin would be justly punished in a substitute so that guilty sinners could be forgiven without compromising the demands of His justice, so that His wrath would be satisfied in a manner that's consistent with His love and mercy. Only He could have possessed the love and the grace and the large-heartedness to freely deliver His own beloved Son to make it all happen. Friends, salvation belongs to the Lord. He is the architect of this great gospel by which we are saved. And so, may it be that we worship this saving Father with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, we've beheld the saving father. Let's raise our eyes now to the sinless substitute. The sinless substitute. He, the father made him who knew no sin, him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So Paul calls Jesus here him who knew no sin. Of course, that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't know what sin was. It means that Jesus was not personally acquainted with sin, that he had no experiential knowledge of having participated in sin. Paul's saying that Jesus was entirely sinless. Jesus claimed as much for himself. In John 7, 18, he speaks of himself in the third person, but he says, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. That's Jesus' claim for himself. And if that's not true, that's a lie, and you're unrighteous. So if you're gonna make the claim that you're, there is no unrighteousness in you, that better be true, otherwise that itself is unrighteousness. But it wasn't just Jesus' own testimony of himself. I mean, I might tell you that I'm sinless, but what do you need to do to find out if that's true? You need to ask my wife. You need to go to the person who lives with me every day. The people who lived with Jesus every day for three years said the same thing. These men saw every waking moment in Jesus' life. And if there was something amiss in his life, they'd have been the ones to know it. Here's what they say about that. The Apostle Peter says, Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. The Apostle John said of Jesus, In him there is no sin. The author of Hebrews says he's a sympathetic high priest who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. The man Christ Jesus was absolutely free from sin in thought, in word, and in deed. Nothing he ever did or didn't do ever fell short of the perfect standard of holy righteousness that his Father had given for humanity. Jesus always loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus always loved his neighbor as himself. He only ever did what was pleasing to his Father, and he was man. He was a human being like you and me. And that truth is absolutely essential to the gospel because Jesus is not just the sinless one. He is, as we said, the sinless substitute. The one who knew no sin is made sin on our behalf, in our place. See, in the the Old Testament, God had devised an entire system of animal sacrifices for Israel where the life of an innocent sacrifice would be substituted for the life of a sinner. We said before that sin demands death. And so if if a sinner is going to go free, somebody has to die. And in Old Testament Israel... It was an, an enormous amount of animals. And what we learned in the New Testament is that all of that was just a picture pointing to Jesus, the great and final substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. And just as the animal sacrifice had to be perfect without defect, the Old Testament says, without blemish, so also did Christ need to be perfect without defect and without blemish. And so when Peter speaks of the cross, He calls the believers in Jesus, those who were redeemed with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. See, the only fitting substitute for sinners had to be free from all defect himself. Only a sinless substitute, only someone who knew no sin of his own could qualify to bear the full wrath of God against the sins of others. And it's here, friends, that we behold in the Lord Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, that perfect suitability to our need. Jesus is so perfectly suited for our deepest need, the forgiveness of sins. You see, man had committed sin, and so man is required to pay atonement. But the miserable state of humanity is that sinful man cannot provide atonement for himself, let alone anybody else. The only one who could qualify to save sinners is the perfectly righteous God Himself. So we need the righteousness of a human being, because we're human beings, and we need the righteousness of God, because only God could atone for sin. And so the wonder of wonders is that God, the eternal Son, free from all sin and uncleanness, would be miraculously born of a virgin, by the power of the Holy Spirit. He would live a perfect life as a man so that he might be that sinless substitute that could atone for sinners. Friends, we need to marvel at the wisdom of the divine mind that could conceive such a glorious plan of salvation. We need to worship. We've seen the saving father and the sinless substitute. Number three, we have the sin imputed. And imputed is just an accounting term. It means to count, to reckon, to treat as if, to credit or debit. You could say it's the sin counted or the sin reckoned. And I'll explain more about what that means. Just look at our verse again. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Now, if you've been tracking with me at all, or if you know much of anything about Christianity, that statement ought to totally shock you. He, the loving Father, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And that ought to knock you out of your chair. This sinless one, this spotless lamb, God the Son Himself made sin? Paul intends that to be every bit as startling as it sounds. But of course, we have to be careful to understand the precise meaning of that phrase. For the Father to make the Son sin does not mean that Jesus was made to be a sinner on the cross. That's inconceivable. Neither does it mean that the Father somehow turned Jesus into sin. No, there was never a moment on that cross that Christ was anything but perfectly holy, the spotless Lamb as we just read before. So in what sense then, in what sense did the Father make the Son to be sin? In only this sense. On the cross, the Father imputed or counted the sins of His people to the Son. This is what we call the imputation of sin to Christ. What that means is the father treated Jesus as if he committed the sins of every one of the people that his father had given to him, though in fact he had committed none of those sins. In other words, the father charged the sins of all of those who would ever believe to Christ's account. He laid the burden of the guilt of our sin upon his shoulders and caused him to pay the penalty for sin that we owed. And what was that penalty? It was to bear in his own person the full fury of the Father's wrath against all of our sins, against all of our crimes. Back in the Old Testament, just spoke about it, Leviticus 16. God had prescribed for the nation of Israel what was called the Day of Atonement. Every year, the nation would have its sins forgiven by following instructions that God had given for sacrifice. On that day, there were two goats. One was called the goat of sacrifice. It was to be killed, and its blood was to be sprinkled on the altar, symbolizing what ought to have happened to us because of our sin. And then the other goat was called a scapegoat and the scapegoat was to be kept alive. The high priest was commanded to lay his hands on the head of the goat to confess all of Israel's sins over the goat and then to banish him into the wilderness. And by confessing Israel's sins over the head of the scapegoat, the high priest was symbolizing that God had reckoned the sin and the guilt of the people now judicially transferred, legally transferred to the goat. Instead of bearing their own iniquity and being banished from the presence of God, Israel's sin was imputed to a substitute. It was counted to a substitute. The innocent scapegoat bears the sin, the guilt, and the punishment of the people and then is banished in their place. Well, Isaiah 53 says all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And I didn't finish the verse before. Here's the second half of the verse. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. 1 Peter 2.24 says, and He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. In Galatians 3.13, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. The curse of the law which we were under because of our sin, namely the curse of suffering under the wrath of God for eternity, was born by Christ who became a curse for us in our place. On the cross, God the Father is, as it were, laying His hands on, on the head of His Son, the scapegoat, and confessing over Him all of the sins of His people. And as a result of the Son bearing our sin, He's banished from the presence of the Father, leaving Him to suffer in shame and isolation. God the Son, who from eternity was the apple of his father's eye, his ever-present companion, the delight of his eyes, in whom his soul was always well-pleased, that one was forsaken by his father as he laid upon him the iniquity of us all and abandoned him to bear his unleashed fury. Quite literally, Jesus went through hell On the cross all the bitterness of hell all the pain of the Father's consummate displeasure and rejection and wrath that is the substance of our punishment in hell all of that broke over the head of the innocent son in those three hours on the cross until he finally cries out those wretched words my God my God why Have you forsaken me? Utter bewilderment when for the first time in all of eternity the Son knew the Father's displeasure by experience. And what I would plead with you to understand is that, dear sinner, that was your cry of dereliction. Why have you forsaken me? There's a good answer to that question when I ask it, when you ask it. But we don't cry that. At least we don't have to because He cried it. The bitter cup of wrath that Jesus drank was yours to drink. And if God is to remain both just and justifier, if He is going to declare guilty sinners righteous, then He's going to have to declare a righteous substitute guilty. If God is going to reconcile sinners to Himself and and not count our trespasses against us and still remain holy, He must count them against a sinless substitute. He must impute them to our sin-bearing Savior. So, friends, this is why Jesus is hanging on that cross. Not because He wants to be a good example Though, of course, that's true. He is a good example. Not because He wants to show you how much He thought of you and what you were worth. Jesus is on that cross so that all of the punishment that your sins deserved would be borne by your substitute so that God's righteousness would be satisfied in strict accordance with holy justice. God can justly and legally and righteously not count our trespasses against us and he can forgive us only because he legally imputed our sins to Christ on the cross. You say that's not fair. That's punishing the innocent. But Jesus volunteers, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus willingly bears the sins of his people so that they might go free. We've seen the saving father, the sinless substitute, the sin imputed. That brings us to our fourth facet of the gospel in this text, namely the saint's righteousness, the saint's righteousness. And when I say saint, I mean the saved person, the believer. Saints aren't these extra holy people who uh, have done a whole bunch of good works and get zapped to heaven from purgatory. All that's nonsense. Saints are the ones who are holy in Christ, who are united to the holy one. So the believer's righteousness. Look once more at our verse. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The righteousness of God. That's what God requires of his creatures to be in fellowship with him. If you're going to be reconciled to the saving relationship with God, you need to possess a record of righteousness which consists in perfectly and consistently acting in a way that upholds the glory and honor of God's name in everything. In other words, you need to have perfect obedience. But we're sinful. We don't perfectly obey. We have no hope of attaining this righteousness. But the gospel, Scripture says, Romans 1.17, is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes because in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Paul calls the the gospel the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. Elsewhere, he says, the gospel is not having my own righteousness, which is derived from the law, but that righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Friends, if we're going to have any hope of salvation at all, we must be provided with the righteousness of God. We need our penalty paid. We need our sins forgiven. But then we need a positive righteousness that earns us a place with God. And if we were to receive a righteousness answerable to our own nature and need, which is to say a human righteousness, that righteousness of God must be the righteousness of a man. And so again, wonder of wonders, the God-man becomes our righteousness. Humanity and deity, infinitely different, become wedded together in one glorious person to accomplish precisely what we need. And so Romans 5.19 talks about the, the difference between Adam and Christ. And it says, For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were constituted sinners, so... By the one man's obedience, the many will be counted righteous. I'm going to say that again because I think that's a providential motorboat in the background. As through the one man's disobedience, the many were were constituted sinners, so by the one man's obedience will the many be constituted righteous. Adam sinned and we're guilty. Christ obeyed, and we can be declared righteous. So Christ, friends, did not only die to forgive our sins, he also lived to provide our righteousness. And when we trust in him, we get both benefits. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. In other words, God imputed our sins to Christ so that we might become the righteousness of God in him so that God could impute Christ's righteousness to us. He treated Jesus as if he lived my life so that he can justly treat me as if I lived Jesus' life. That is the great exchange. Our filthy garments of sin wrapped upon the sinless one and his pure white robe of righteousness laid upon us. And the prophet Isaiah sings of this reality in chapter 61 of his prophecy he says I will rejoice greatly in the Lord I will exalt my soul will exalt in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation he has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness And in the 2nd century one of the early church fathers celebrated this very text by exclaiming this he said oh the sweet exchange Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous man, while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. Friend, my question to you is that as you sit here this evening, do you know, and I mean know with certainty, that you are one of those many sinners who are justified by the righteousness of Jesus? I want you to notice two very tiny, very important words that come at the end of our verse. If you're reading the New American Standard, if you're reading the ESV, they come in the middle. But He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him in Him. Those two words teach us that this wonderful exchange happens only through repentance from sin and saving faith in Jesus Christ. It is only in Him, only in a saving faith union with the righteous one, that the righteousness of God can be made yours. It is only by faith in Christ, apart from any works of your own, that you might be declared righteous in the sight of this holy God with whom you have to do. Nothing of yours counts for righteousness. Only what Jesus has accomplished has counts, and the only way to lay hold of it is nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's it. Faith is that empty-handed embrace of all that Christ is for us. It's saying, I've got nothing of my own, but I trust Him. I'm with Him. I want that one. That's why you should let me in, Father, not because of me, not because of anything I've done or didn't do, but because of what He has done. I trust that He's sufficient. I believe Him. Friend, you have heard the good news of Jesus Christ this evening, that you've sinned, that you are deserving of hell, that that you are helpless under the weight of God's judgment, but that Christ the righteous has both lived and died in the place of sinners and promises to welcome all the weary and heavy laden who come to Him in repentance and faith. Come to Him for righteousness. I entreat you this evening, turn from your sin. Turn away even from the filthy rags of your own good works and trust entirely in the perfect death and the perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ to pay for your sin and to provide for your righteousness. Trust in Him and you shall have Him. You shall have the righteousness of God. You'll be saved. Let's pray. Father, would you send the Spirit now to blow over the hearts of all those within the sound of my voice that you would grant saving repentance and faith in the gospel of Christ crucified. May your word of truth penetrate the heart of stone. Holy Spirit, give spiritual life where there has been only death. Lord Jesus, call your sheep into your fold. Father, save your elect. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.